RX. Today on Studio 360... She had to be able to identify a person 60 feet away at night without glasses. You can't send someone off to die on evidence like that. A movie without romance or gunshots or multiple locations. Just 12 people in a room talking. You want to see this boy die because you personally want to die because of the facts. You're a sadist. How 12 Angry Men made the judicial process thrilling. Plus... A video game from 2019 that plays like a game from 1980 that sounds like a cartoon from 1930. I wasn't trying to write specifically for a video game. I was writing big band tunes and I was trying to make them fast and quirky enough so that they would work in the game context. The music of Cuphead, the first video game soundtrack to top the Billboard jazz charts. That and more is ahead in Studio 360 right after this. Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson, and I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is right Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken, please. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. Okay, picture this. It's live on TV, this big trial. If there is no objection. Former reality TV star and World Wrestling Hall of Famer presiding is the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. The Sergeant in Arms will make the proclamation. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. All persons are commanded to keep silent on pain of imprisonment. While the Senate of the United States is sitting for the trial of the Articles of Impeachment, exhibited by the House of Representatives against Donald John Trump, President of the United States. It makes for a great show, but spoiler alert, he's acquitted. Fictional trials and prosecutions are a staple of movies and especially television. This week, we are looking at 12 Angry Men. The original poster for the 1957 film directed by Sidney Lumet had the tagline, it explodes like 12 sticks of dynamite as if it were some kind of action blockbuster. But in 12 Angry Men, there's no actual violence or cops or chases at all. It's just dialogue and just one location, this barren, hot, stuffy room where 12 jurors are deciding the fate of a teenager accused of murder. For the latest in our American Icon series, Studio 360's Sam Kim, with the help of a sitting Supreme Court justice, explores how this small, low-budget, black-and-white film came to be made and continues to loom large. The first time I saw 12 Angry Men was in a high school social studies class. It was a copy on VHS, played on one of those TV carts on wheels. It's kind of the ideal context for it because this is a very powerful movie and it's an educational movie and it's a very American movie. That's Nathan Rabin, pop culture writer. Actually, before we start, um, for anybody who hasn't seen it or needs a refresher, can you briefly summarize the movie? Oh, sure, no problem. Uh, Twilight Your Man is an American drama. You're faced with a grave responsibility. Thank you, gentlemen. About the deliberations uh, that happen when an 18-year-old minority kid is accused of murdering his father using a switchblade knife. Now, all those voting guilty, please raise your hands. And at first, uh, the jury is convinced of his guilt. Okay, that's 11 guilty. 
Who's voting not guilty? With the exception of an idealistic juror. One. Right. Played by Henry Fonda. It's not easy to raise my hand and send a boy off to die without talking about it first. And then on the other side, you have Lee J. Cobb as the angriest one who just is in a furious hurry to condemn this boy. And what is this? Love your underprivileged brother week or something? And Henry Fonda uses logic. The old man, according to his own testimony, would have had to hear the boy make this statement with the yell roaring past his nose. It's not possible he could have heard it. Reason. Do you wear glasses when you go to bed? No, I don't. She couldn't have had time to put them on. Maybe she honestly thought she saw the boy kill his father. I say she only saw a blur. And over the course of the movie, uh, he convinces his fellow jurors to come around to his point of view. One... I vote not guilty. By one... I'm convinced. Not guilty. And by the end, the dynamic has been completely reversed, and a group of people seemingly convinced to send an 18-year-old boy to his death uh, are instead uh, convinced uh, to free him. But the story of 12 Angry Men begins much, much earlier, at the Foley Square Courthouse in New York. Today, it's called the Thurgood Marshall United States Courthouse. It's where Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were tried. Mrs. Ethel Rosenberg, who with her husband was convicted of actually transmitting the secrets to Russia. As well as Martha Stewart. I want them to know how very, very sorry I am for them and their families. And the year after the Rosenbergs were executed, in the spring of 1954, a 33-year-old TV writer named Reginald Rose reported here for jury duty. I had never been in a courtroom before. It was such an impressive, solemn setting in a great big wood-paneled courtroom with a silver-haired judge. It knocked me out. That's what Rose later told the New York Daily News. In the 1950s, he was best known for writing hour-long original dramas for live TV. I was on a jury for a manslaughter case, and we got into this terrific, furious eight-hour argument in the jury room. And I thought, wow, what a setting for a drama. Rose died in 2002. When he was alive, he rarely talked to the press. But luckily, I found someone who could read those interview excerpts. I am Jonathan Rose. I am the son of Reginald Rose, the eldest son. McCarthyism was never far from Reginald Rose's mind. In the early 1950s, my father came from advertising, and he got to meet other people in writing and acting and directing who got caught in the web of the blacklist. And yes, they were communist, socialist, anarchists, and they got punished terribly as a result. That's probably why the jury room setting was so irresistible for Rose. He quickly wrote an outline inspired by his experience as a juror. I just took the setting and invented a story and characters. It had nothing to do with the trial I'd been on. The CBS show Studio One, which aired live original dramas every week, bought it immediately. It came out very easily. I wrote the original 52-minute script in five days. On September 20th, 1954, the teleplay was broadcast on CBS. Westinghouse Studio One. Twelve Angry Men. It was directed by Franklin Schaffner, who would later direct Patton and Planet of the Apes. It starred Robert Cummings as juror number eight. Oh, wait this minute. isn't a game. Do you think you'll walk? Get it easy, fellas. I got a good mind to walk around this table and belt the place. Please, please, please. 
Jonathan was about four years old when he first saw it. And my father turned to us and said, so how'd you like it, John? And I said, boy, were they ever angry. The 12 Angry Men teleplay had lots of admirers, critics, the Television Academy, who gave it three Emmys, and Henry Fonda. After its airing, Fonda contacted Rose about his interest in a film version of the teleplay in which he would play juror number eight. That's film historian Drew Casper on the 12 Angry Men DVD commentary track. Fonda formed his own production company. He called it Orion Nova with writer Reginald Rose to produce, write, and star in the film version of 12 Angry Men. And for the director's chair, Rose had an unconventional choice in mind, a little-known actor and TV director named Sidney Lumet. And Sidney was just this bundle of energy. The two of them were about the same height. My father was yeah, tended to be a little chunkier, and Sidney was just a bundle of wire. He and Reginald Rose hit it off. My name is Thane Rosenbaum. I'm a novelist and an essayist and a law professor. I co-produced a documentary about Sidney Lumet for American Masters, which was called By Sidney Lumet. Lumet died in 2011. Throughout his career, he directed classics like Dog Day Afternoon, Serpico, and Network. But in his early 30s, he worked with Rose on a number of socially conscious teleplays, like Tragedy in a Temporary Town, a chilling story that expanded on the themes of 12 Angry Men. So you know, just give me the names, let's go. I can't give it to you if I don't know what it's for. Look, Mr. Puerto Rico, I want your first name, I want his, and I don't want any of your left. In this instance, it's not the jury, it's the entire town turns on an immigrant family who was falsely accused of committing a crime. You were walking through these woods. No. And that girl came along. No, I wasn't there. And you jumped on her. No! Come on, tell the truth once in your life, one time. I am. Get out of here! You won't put your mouth like you're Fonda agreed with Rose, and they took a chance on Lumet. And Henry Fonda, really, he gave him his first really big break. Other than that, Sidney could have remained in television for the rest of his career. Rose went to work expanding the teleplay into a full-length feature film. Each of the jurors got backstories, and in the teleplay, the race of the defendant is never explicit. But in the film version, the racially charged themes are front and center. The film is a frontal assault on the justicism. People in the 1950s, when they thought of lawyers, they were thinking still of Perry Mason, was roughly around the same time. The lawyers were often the good guys. And then he killed Ned Thompson. No, no, I didn't do those things. I didn't kill Ned Thompson. No, Mr. Nichols, you didn't kill Thompson. But you did, Mr. Wells. The case against Evelyn Bagby is dismissed. Oh, Mr. Mason, I'm so grateful. And so this was very different. Remember, the country was still a number of years away from the social upheavals of the 1960s. You can point to 12 Angry Men as something that was a part of cultural history that gave artists and the public permission to look honestly at institutions that fail us, looking at the legal system as not a place of justice. You know, without the good fortune of one juror, uh, you know, a boy could have been put to death. And so the very beginnings of thinking about civil rights, civil liberties, due process, equal protection, they're all in 12 Angry Men. While the film was an assault on the justice system, it was also attacking a system of a different kind, Hollywood in the 1950s. Remember, the studio heads, they were so locked in to a 1930s vision of what movies do. For them, films were about escapism. That was their entire objective. 
And they made fortunes giving Americans escape right through the Depression. Think about how important that was. That's why the 30s were filled with films about these incredibly wealthy people who no one, of course, could have possibly known because half the country was unemployed. Meanwhile, Hollywood was pumping out these incredibly elaborate films that showcased beautiful Hollywood handsome people with perfect teeth, exotic, glamorous locales, boy gets the girl, happy, life-affirming endings. You walk out feeling better. But in New York, a new generation of filmmakers were starting to crop up. They were inspired by the realistic style of films coming out of Europe, like The Bicycle Thief. You were seeing in those days urban, gritty, socially conscious indictments of society that had ambivalent endings. I would argue it, it begins with On the Waterfront. You think you're God Almighty, but you know what you are? Come on! You're a cheap! Lousy, dirty, stinking mug! And 12 Angry Men. It was clearly a film that Hollywood distributed, but it was an anti-Hollywood film. One could imagine the pitch session, you know, at a Hollywood studio chief. There's no violence, you know, there's no beautiful woman, there's no beautiful man. You know, it's 12 character actors, 11 with Henry Fonda. Most of the time, it's just 12 men sitting around a table, angry. I mean, we're all going crazy in here or something. They go to the bathroom. They go to the bathroom. That's considered movement, right? That's the action shot. What's the action shot? I made 27 grand last year selling marmalade. That's not bad. I mean, you know, considering marmalade. When I began to do 12 Angry Men, everybody said, you're crazy. How can you do a picture in one room? That's an archival interview with Sidney Lumet. I never thought of it as a problem. If one simply made the camera work a part of what the piece was about, emotionally and subjectively. And Lumet pulled it off, thanks to his collaboration with cinematographer Boris Kaufman, who a couple of years before shot on the waterfront. You don't realize it, but scene by scene, he's going tighter. He's bringing the faces closer to you. In the beginning, you don't really see it. It's a much more wider and then as they get angrier and angrier. It does have an evolution in the lighting style. That's cinematographer John Bailey talking about the film for the Criterion Collection. The walls become darker, the shadows become a little bit stronger. The, the close-ups, especially the very tight close-ups when you get in toward the end with wide angle lenses, it was very dangerous to use a wider angle lens for a close-up uh, because of the distortion. Yet Kaufman seemed to walk that razor edge between it being arresting and making you feel very present with the shot and it sort of putting you off. You lousy bunch of bleeding hearts. After a few weeks of shooting, the movie was released in April 1957, and... No, it did not do well. In New York City, for example, it opened at Lowe's big movie palace on Broadway, the Capitol Theater. The Capitol Theater had 4,600 seats. The patrons filled about a half dozen rows, day in, day out. The film was pulled after a week. This was more or less how it played around the country. People didn't come to films to, for civics lessons. 
You know, they didn't think that you could learn about the justice system and pay a ticket. Maybe not. But as time went on, the movie slowly found its fans, including one moviegoer in the Bronx. This is from the conversation series at the Forum on Life, Culture, and Society at Turo College. I saw this movie either at the very end of high school or at the very beginning of college. That Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, the first Hispanic American on the Supreme Court. She talked about 12 Angry Men after a screening in 2010. And I had been thinking about becoming a lawyer, but I really had never thought about juries up until I saw this movie. The character who really spoke to her was juror number 11. He's the European watchmaker and naturalized citizen played by George Voskovec. About an hour into the movie, after the jurors nearly come to blows, he speaks up. This fighting, that's not why we are here to fight. We have a responsibility. This I have always thought is a remarkable thing about democracy, that uh, we are, what is the word? Uh, notified, that we are notified by mail to come down to this place to decide on the guilt or innocence of a man we, we have never heard of before. In that scene when he talked about the greatness of democracy being the jury system. We have nothing to gain or lose by, by our verdict. This is one of the reasons why we are strong. He sold me. He sold me that I was on the right path, that my choice of profession was a noble one. I was inspired by the sense that decision makers like this jury would take their work so seriously. So it was a very important film in terms of developing me both as a lawyer and subsequently as a judge. And so many of the things that I thought I had done intuitively as a prosecutor, I got from this movie. (laughs) Now, this is so far from reality. (laughs) And (laughs) when I was a prosecutor, almost every voir dire, and a voir dire is where a lawyer questions a jury, I used to talk to the jury about 12 Angry Men. And I would say to them, I hope you're not misled by that movie. And I would explain to them that some of the things that happened there shouldn't happen in juries. There was an awful lot of speculation there. Uh, Here's what I think happened. The old man heard the fight between the boy and his father a few hours earlier. Then when he's lying in his bed, he heard a body hit the floor in the boy's apartment, heard the woman scream from across the street, got to his front door as fast as he could, heard somebody racing down the stairs and assumed it was the boy. I think that's possible. Assumed? You can't guess or make things up. You had to rely on the evidence as it was presented. Or take the memorable scene where the jurors argue about the murder weapon. No, I'm just saying it's possible the boy lost his knife and that somebody else stabbed his father with a similar knife. It's just possible. Take a look at this knife. It's a very unusual knife. I've never seen one like it. Neither had the storekeeper who sold it to the boy. Aren't you asking us to accept a pretty incredible coincidence? And then Henry Fonda reaches into his pocket and pulls out an identical switchblade. What is that? The same knife. It turns out that Fonda's character visited the defendant's neighborhood the night before. And certainly you don't want them going for a walk late at night and picking up a knife from a pawn shop. (laughs) 
and so when I was a prosecutor, I used to tell them, you can't do that. <laughs> in fact, if that scene actually happened, the story would have ended right then and there. The introduction of extraneous evidence into a jury room is a primary ground for a judge declaring a mistrial. It's hard for me to imagine a judge who wouldn't have. And so I know this movie shouldn't be reality, except for one thing. We expect that same attention to detail and that same passion about doing what's right. We'll return to our American Icon story about 12 Angry Men right after this. Studio 360. And now, back to Sam Kim's story on our latest American Icon. 12 Angry Men didn't just inspire a Supreme Court justice. It also helped usher in a whole new genre. On the strength, on the heels of the possibilities that were presented in 12 Angry Men, someone like Reginald Rose would go off and create the Defenders, which was revolutionary for its time. The Defenders was on CBS from 1961 to 1965. It starred E.G. Marshall, who played the analytical juror number four in 12 Angry Men. And many episodes were directed by Franklin Schaffner, who did the original teleplay. Like 12 Angry Men, it didn't shy away from hot-button, ripped-from-the-headlines topics. The defense is willing to concede that an operation was performed on Miss Stafford, which resulted in the termination of a pregnancy. The defenders showed what was possible in a procedural courtroom drama. And other people were watching the same possibilities. And you remember, by the 1990s, the number of law shows was extraordinary. David Kelly himself had three, Alec McBeal. We have a case in our office right now where this woman wants to get her marriage annulled. The practice. Our legal system is adversarial by nature. Picket fences. The law already recognizes the right to die, Your Honor. Then there was the Law and Order series and the special victims units that we know. So there were endless numbers of these lawyer shows. Objection. Objection. They are all traceable to 12 Angry Men and and the work that Reggie and Sidney did. The film also inspired parodies, from The Dick Van Dyke Show to Happy Days. All right, who is the weirdo who voted not guilty, Amando, huh? But I think the best example of how malleable the plot of 12 Angry Men is, is this 2015 episode of Inside Amy Schumer. So, gentlemen, raise your hands, please, if you think that Amy Schumer is not hot enough to be on television, one. Schumer transposes the story into a satire about the male gaze. You really think she's attractive? I don't know. This is her talking to Terry Gross in 2015. I thought about, my two friends were male comics, they were deliberating if, if they thought Michelle Williams was hot. And they're both, you know, really like kind of debating this and they're like, I don't think I'd have sex with her. And I'm just like looking at them, like, and they look like complete gargoyles, you know? There's a constant stream of, of articles and comments about Lena and Mindy and, and myself. And, and I just kept thinking of the word deliberating. Do you wear your glasses when you watch television at night? Like when you're in bed before you go to sleep? Do we really need to look at her again? She's built like a lineman and she has cabbage patch-like features. Her ass makes me furious. 12 Angry Men also inspired, well, 12 Angry Men. It's been adapted and readapted for stage countless times. In 1997, William Friedkin directed a made-for-TV version starring Jack Lemmon in the Henry Fonda role. 
I'm just saying that it is possible that the boy lost the knife and somebody else stabbed his father with a similar knife. It's possible, that's all. For this version, Rose updated the script here and there. There were some interesting casting decisions, like having the bigoted juror number 10 be played by African-American actor Michael T. Williamson, and having the immigrant juror be played by Mexican-American actor Edward James Olmos. But Rose was resistant when producers wanted him to modernize the text beyond that. As he told the Daily News, They all wanted to bring it up to date, which to make it realistic by today's standards would have to include women. You'd have to call it 12 Angry Jurors, but I just felt that would change the whole dynamic. It would have to be completely rewritten because not only do women not talk like men, but men don't talk the same way if there are women in the room. So I said no. In a lot of ways, he's right. It most certainly does change when there are women in the room. Um, But I think it changes for the better. My name is Natalie Roy Wilson. I am an adjunct professor of theater at Cypress College. And just this last year, in 2019, I directed a production of 12 Angry Jurors. The cast in this production included women and people of color. When you take a look at this story and you mix minorities into it and you mix uh, different genders and things get switched around, I think it only fills the story. This led to a new take on old characters. Maya, who played Juror 6, had a whole backstory about her kids. It's interesting when it's a mother and not a father. So when you make that switch, how does that affect how this juror looks at this young man that's on trial? Maybe she would say, what if this was my son? And then you get into a mother's love and how that would affect decision making. In Natalie's production, the bigoted juror number 10 is still played by a white actor, but his hateful monologue toward the end of the play takes on a totally different dimension. The big rant that Juror 10 has, the really, really horrible and racist one about these people this and those people that, and this is how they are, and they're never going to change, that became a lot more intense when it was a Caucasian actor saying it to an African-American actor. It's different than when they are both middle-aged, upper-middle-class white men. So that took on a new intensity. And when that big moment happened, you could hear a pin drop in the theater because it was just like, I can't believe these horrible things are actually coming out of his mouth. And even though 12 Angry Men seems so quintessentially American, the film has found surprising life overseas. Chinese director Xu Ang remade it as 12 Citizens. In 2007, Russian director Nikita Mikhalkov remade it as 12. There was a Bollywood version in 1986. But the most interesting adaptation might be the one in Arabic. It was an adaptation, so we called it 12 Angry Lebanese. I talked to the director, who lives near Beirut. My name is Zainab Akash. I am Lebanese. I'm a theater director and I'm a drama therapist. It was a drama therapy uh, program for 15 months inside the most notorious uh, Lebanese prison called Rumye Prison. Which recontextualizes it in a really fascinating way, since her cast is made up of people convicted of the most heinous crimes. I suggested it to the inmates. I said, what do you think? And 
voila, everyone was like, we've been judged by the society. Now we are playing, it's a role reversal. We are playing the role of society that is judging us. She translated the play in Arabic herself. And how did we adapt it? So you'd see, uh, for example, number 11 in the main uh, play, he was coming uh, from Europe or something, you know. Here I adapted it as a Nigerian guy who would come and work in Lebanon. You know, in Lebanon there's a lot of domestic workers. And uh, everyone is racist. Like, you black man, what do you understand, you black? Because we can be very racist in Lebanon. And the justice system works very differently there. We don't offer this chance, actually, to the people. It's just judges, and each judge has two judges here to help him out with the decision. So 12 Angry Men didn't exactly translate as a story about the criminal justice system. In Lebanon, it ended up working better as a political allegory. I think everyone who watched 12 Angry Lebanese, the 12 sitting on this table are all the political parties in Lebanon. If you, I don't know how much you know about our political context here, but you know that there are a lot of political parties. So things like number seven, oh, I need to go. I have my other things to do, you know, very selfish. My football, my football, my team, you know, I'm, I'm not interested. You'd have other politicians or ministers like number two. Uh, 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 I think um, guys with no balls. If if you were Lebanese and you watched the play, you'd say, oh, my God, I know who we're talking about, this number 10, you know? I can tell who is this number 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, what is that in the background? So that's the church. It's near my house. <laughs> There's a mess tonight, so the, the priest invites everyone with the bell. Oh. Come oh. on, yalla, join. Okay, we'll do. <laughs> In 2017, Nathan Rabin wrote an article for Vanity Fair titled, 12 Angry Men is More Relevant Than Ever in the Age of Trump. One of the many ways in which 12 Angry Men is very timely is because it it captures this need to find scapegoats and say, if non-white people are accused of something, they're guilty and they need to be punished. The most egregious instance of this was during the Central Park Five case, which was, you know, uh, somewhat a little bit analogous to this. You know, you have a minority teenager, you have somebody who everybody thinks is guilty. Five teens, four black, one Latino, all charged with the brutal rape of a 20 28-year-old jogger in New York's Central Park. Donald Trump, who was a real estate magnate in 1989, was vocal about the case. You better believe that I hate the people that took this girl and raped her brutally. You better believe it. If minorities look like they might be guilty, then they are guilty. And not only are they guilty, definitely, you don't need to hear out the facts and whatnot, but they should be killed. Two weeks after their high-profile arrest, Donald Trump took out full-page ads in four major newspapers calling for the death penalty to be reinstated. That was a matter of somebody who was clearly innocent and whom the system proved incontrovertibly, seemingly in every conceivable way, and that just did not matter. He still wouldn't back down. And now, even now, Trump said he still considers the men guilty issuing a statement saying, quote, they admitted they were guilty. The police doing the original investigation say they were guilty. The fact that case was settled with so much evidence against them is outrageous. You could almost hear that statement in Lee J. Cobb's voice. What's the matter with you guys? 
You all know he's guilty. He's got to burn. You're letting him slip through our fingers. Slip through our fingers? Are you his executioner? I'm one of them. Perhaps you'd like to pull the switch. For this kid, you bet I would. I feel sorry for you. What it must feel like to want to pull the switch. Ever since you walked into this room, you've been acting like a self-appointed public avenger. You want to see this boy die because you personally want it, not because of the facts. You're a sadist. The jurors also had different ways of interpreting the facts. The facts are supposed to determine the case. Don't give me that. I'm sick and tired of facts. You can twist them any way you like. You know what I mean? I feel like that dovetails very neatly with Kellyanne Conway. You're saying it's a falsehood. Our press secretary gave alternative facts to that. But the point remains... Alternative facts? Look, alternative facts are not facts. They're falsehoods. And the way juror number 10, played by Ed Bagley, rails against slums and poor people. The kids who crawl out of these places are real trash. I don't want any part of them, I'm telling you. And that is an idea that Donald Trump rode to the presidency. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists. And when juror number 10 delivers that explosive, hateful monologue. Nobody's blaming them for it, that's the way they are, by nature. You know what I mean? Violent. He's raging, and he's not doing a good job of pretending that he's anything but a bigot. Human life don't mean as much to them as it does to us. And there's this wonderful, wonderful thing where, you know, his fellow jurors, they literally turn their back to him. Where are you going? Because what he's saying is repugnant to them as Americans. What's happening in here? I'm speaking my piece, and these people are dangerous. Listen So yeah, I think definitely when Donald Trump has tried to enact some of his more draconian measures and then the American people have rebelled. Overnight, another surge of protests against President Trump's controversial executive order. Uh, They're carrying on the spirit of Henry Fonda. That's the optimistic take that ended Rabin's article. He wrote it right after Americans collectively turned their backs on Trump's travel ban and it was struck down by the lower courts. But a year later, the major victory for President Trump, the Supreme Court in a 5-4 decision today upholding the president's controversial travel ban affecting several predominantly Muslim countries. I feel like I wrote that in a more hopeful world. Uh, I feel like we've just been beaten down. It's hard for me to have faith in the goodness and the morality and the moral superiority of the American people. Um, you know, I feel like uh, in some ways, 12 Angry Men, it, it kind of, you know, it's like the, the films of Frank Capra, where there's this, this beautiful dream uh, of what America is and, and who we are um, and, and the values that we embody and that we will fight for. Even Reginald Rose wondered if he would have lived up to the character he created. I asked Jonathan about it. I think, I mean, Henry Fonda's character would be the one he aspired to. I think he had a peculiar affinity for the one who was an advertising person. Rice pops, a breakfast with a built-in bounce. I wrote that line. That's juror number 12, played by Robert Weber. He's the most wishy-washy juror who's easily bullied into changing his vote. It's not so easy to arrange all the evidence in order. You can throw out all the other evidence. What else do you want? All right, I'm changing my vote. But I think he would, he, there was an identification with him because he realized that was the industry he'd been in. He might have an empathy with this guy who's trying to be a good corporate guy, but people have to move up. People have to better themselves. I would like to think that I would be uh, Henry Fonda. I also would just like to go home. 
<laughs> you know, because <laughs> that's just, it's such an appealing, appealing option. That's part of what makes it so heroic is that it's going against the grain and doing something that's difficult. Uh, because I feel like we as, as a culture are very uh, drawn to doing what's easy and what's convenient. Back in high school, when I saw 12 Angry Men, I saw it as a movie about one courageous juror standing up to bigots like Lee J. Cobb and Ed Bagley. But watching it now, I'm seeing that it's the characters in the middle who might be the true villains of 12 Angry Men. The movie is really about indifference. It's really about apathy. It's about passiveness, about how it's really easy if you're not being named, if you're given a number and you're just one in a crowd, it's really easy, convenient, expedient, appropriate probably to just not make waves, not step out of line, and it's only a certain kind of person that's willing to take that risk. That It's just one person stepping out and simply saying, excuse me, I don't know, I have a weird feeling about this. This is exactly how mobs get dissipated, how they get stopped in their tracks. 11 guilty, one not guilty. Well, now we know where we are. So, what do we do now? Well, I guess we talk. That story was produced by Sam Kim. Studio 360's American Icons is made possible by a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts. And you can listen to any or all five dozen of the stories and hours in the series at studio360.org. Next up, why one of the best new video games of 2020 is going to sound a lot like 1920. I really wanted to approach it as if the golden age of big band and the golden age of video games maybe coexisted simultaneously. The musician behind the very cool old-timey hit game Cuphead and its imminent follow-up, The Delicious Last Course. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. Last year, Michael Buble's album Love was at the top of the Billboard jazz chart for nine months, until the week of September 14th. That is when Christopher Madigan released his double album of big band and ragtime tunes. It instantly took over the top spot. I adore old jazz, Fats Waller and Big Spiderback, the old vinyl record sound, imagining the speakeasy milieu. And Madigan's album is a tribute to that 20s and 30s music. But his pieces were composed and played for a quintessentially turn of the 21st century genre and venue, a video game called Cuphead, making this the first time ever that a video game soundtrack was a number one Billboard jazz hit. So how do you write music for a video game? And how did this album become so popular? Studio 360's Morgan Flannery has the story. In the 1980s, Christopher Madigan grew up in Saskatchewan, a province in western Canada. That's where he met and befriended two brothers, Chad and Jared Moldenhauer. We went to school together, and I kind of spent many of my formative years on the couch in their basement, freezing my feet off and my fingers, because it was freezing in there, playing video games. 
They also grew up watching those sort of cheap VHS tapes that you would get at the grocery store in like the 50 cent bin of, you know, the old cartoons. Those cartoons included shorts by Max Fleischer, the animator and head of Fleischer Studios, who made classic cartoons like Betty Boop. And Popeye. You know what I told you? I wanted a soldier. I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. The Fleischer cartoon characters have long, skinny limbs that bend and curve and flop around, which is a style that's known as rubber hose animation. Eventually, Chad and Jared went to college and moved away from their boyhood home where they'd played those video games in that freezing basement. And Chris went on to study music and to become a professional musician. He became the principal percussionist of the National Ballet of Canada Orchestra. Meanwhile, Chad and Jared pursued their dream of making video games of their own. They started their own independent studio working remotely out of their homes. And around 2012, they hit upon an idea. What if they combined 80s video games with their other love, Fleischer cartoons? The result was Cuphead. Well, Cuphead and his Pelmug man, they like to roll the dice. By chance they came upon Devil's Game, and gosh, they paid the price. Paid the price. The game centers around Cuphead and his brother Mugman. They look like two walking coffee mugs with big eyes and straws sticking out of their heads. The game plays like a classic run-and-gun shooter. If you don't know what that is, think Super Mario Brothers, but with guns. Here's a real high-class battle. Now go! But the most striking thing about the game is the way that it looks. What it ended up becoming was a visual homage to the cartoons they grew up loving, that sort of surrealist... Fleischer, a Biwerks style, early Disney, combined with the games they grew up loving from that specific genre. So the whole game is hand-drawn and hand-animated. That's right. Every frame, every background was drawn by hand with ink and paint. It wasn't just a video game. It felt like you were playing a cartoon from the 1930s. Chad and Jared also wanted that vintage style for the way the game sounds. So they turned to their childhood friend turned musician for help. Chad was very clear from the beginning they wanted something that was more exciting. Like a lot of those old cartoons, they have more of a kind of a chamber orchestra sound, like a small orchestra doing jaunty tunes. Like this Fleischer cartoon from 1931. So Chad said, you know, we would prefer the music to be more in that 30s big band style. Cab Calloway. Duke Ellington. Benny Goodman, Lionel Hampton, like that kind of sound. That sounded like a cool idea, but this wasn't exactly Chris's wheelhouse. He'd never written video game music before. He was now in his 30s, working as a full-time orchestral musician, but composing big band tunes was not in his job description. 
I mean, I was hesitant at first because, you know, I had never done any writing before, let alone writing for this very specific style. You know, starting from such a blank slate kind of place was a little scary. So how was he going to pull this off? Once I was sort of committed to it and once they knew the style they wanted, the first step was really just sitting down and listening to thousands of tunes, just listening to them and sort of figuring out, like, what makes, you know, a 30s swing piece? What makes that that style? So let's take Duke Ellington's classic big band tune, Harlem Airshaft, for instance. What would the breakdown of a song like that look like? A standard form for a big band tune might be intro, main melody, then a solo section, then a, a shout chorus, another solo section, and then the outro. And so every tune has these sections where there are improvised solos. Chris took that classic structure and adapted it for a video game. Most video game music just loops the same melody ad nauseum. But in Cuphead... What we did is that we recorded the whole tune minus the solos in the studio. And then after the fact, we had musicians come in and record multiple solos for each section. So what ends up happening in the game is you might play a level... And, you know, you might hear a saxophone solo. And then you die. And you start the level again. You might get a bit farther, but instead of the saxophone solo, you'll hear a trumpet solo. And then you might get a bit farther, and you'll hear a little bit of a piano solo. I wasn't trying to write specifically for a video game. I was writing big band tunes, and I was trying to make them fast and quirky enough so that they would work in the game context. I really tried to approach the whole thing like, not that I was some composer in the 2000-somethings writing music for an 80s-style video game set in the 30s. Like, I really wanted to approach it as if, you know, the golden age of big band and the golden age of video games maybe coexisted simultaneously. How would a big band composer write for that? You know, it was important for me to take what I could from these great artists of the past, but also, like, how do I make that my own? Chris brought a lot of those great artists of the past into the 2000-somethings. Bethina Waltz by Joplin was one where eventually there's this thing that became the Inkwell theme. And Bethina starts, um, and I was kind of just looking for a place to start in a ragtime style. So I was like, well, if I, you know, reverse that idea and put it in 4 4, bum, 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 bum. Obviously not actually like a complete retrograde of that. It's just, it's a place to start. And then that ended up becoming the the sort of theme riff for Inkwell Isle 1. And then when I was required to compose other Inkwell tunes, I was like, well, I'm just going to make that four-note motif the general starting point for all of these tunes because it makes life way easier. But there are some secrets Chris is not willing to reveal like where the inspiration for his tune Clip Joint Calamity came from, in which Cuphead has to battle two big frog bosses wearing boxing gloves. Some of them have, you know, very specific sort of quotes in them that are based on, like, you know, the frog's tune. It's just uh, a tune that was influenced by Duke Ellington uh, that I really like, that sort of boogie-woogie piano sound. 
that one at some point they were like oh it's going to be the frogs so then you know there's some real secret sort of froggy things in there which i can't really uh that's one of the quotes that no one has actually uh discovered yet so we may never find out which duke ellington song he's referencing with the frogs tune but there's one musician who definitely did not influence chris koji kondo who did the music for super mario brothers a lot of fans point to this song as being an homage to this Mario Brothers piece. That was not intentional, and the thing I would say to that, I know it's very similar, and had I known at the time, I wouldn't have written it like that. But really, uh, it's like that three over two rhythm. has been referred to as a secondary ragtime rhythm, a very common cliche in ragtime music. That chord progression, secondary dominant progression, very common in ragtime music. And then that dun-dun-dun-dun is just as common as dun-dun-dun-dun, ending of ragtime phrases. So it's actually just a combination of all three things. So I'm not going to say anything bad about Koji Kondo, but when he wrote it, it was already like an 80-year-old idea. <laughs> I would certainly wouldn't have made it that blatant if I had heard the tune sometime in the past 20 years, <laughs> but I think I haven't played, that, I haven't played that game since I was a kid. So I would love to go back and actually change that. <laughs> Cuphead has been a huge success since its release in 2017, selling over 5 million copies and winning many awards, including Best Indie Game, Best Original Music, and Best Art Direction. But Chris has no intention of becoming a full-time composer just yet. His first love remains playing music, and he still plays regularly with the National Ballet of Canada Orchestra. Still, he isn't ready to stop working with his childhood friends just yet, Chris is currently writing new music for Cuphead's follow-up expansion called The Delicious Last Course. I'm trying to like stretch out on some styles too. This is going to be a bit more Hot Club of France stuff, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli. And yeah, this one's a bit more planned, debatably. Even though he's one of the most successful video game composers today, he's still not totally comfortable with the title. I'm hesitant to even call myself a video games composer because uh, I wrote big band music for a video game, but I didn't really write quote-unquote video game music. People always ask me, like, how do they break into the gaming composing scene? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I happen to know some guys, but I'm like the worst person to ask. That story was produced by Studio 360's Morgan Flannery. Christopher Madigan is writing the music for the Cuphead follow-up, The Delicious Last Course, which will be out later this year. And if that's not enough Cuphead for you, an animated series based on the game is coming on Netflix. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI in association with Slate. Our production team consists of Jocelyn Gonzalez, Andrew Adam Newman, Sandra Lopez Monsalvo, Sam Kim, Zoe Saunders, Evan Chung, Morgan Flannery, Tommy Bazarian, and I am Kurt Anderson. What's the matter with you guys? You all know he's guilty. He's got to burn. You're letting him slip through our fingers. Thanks very much for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. Pedro Molover is a very tough director. It's not easy working with him. Why Antonio Banderas keeps going back to his longtime collaborator. He managed to bring out of me a character that I didn't even know I had inside. Academy Award nominee Antonio Banderas on Pedro Amadovar, part of our Oscar special, next time on Studio 360.